Well, good morning. That's good to hear from you. You've got a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11. I've been telling you for the last gosh, several weeks now that we are in the thickest part of this book. Uh, and by thick, I just mean dense because Romans 9, 10, and 11 deal with a lot of theology, deal with a lot of uh, what Paul's going to talk about today, just a lot of revelation, a lot of things that were hidden or mysterious for quite some time, but now through the Holy Spirit, Paul is making it known to us. And so we're going to see that again today. I have fewer verses today, but that doesn't necessarily mean the sermon's going to be any shorter. It just means we got more to get through, all right? And so Romans chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to work our way down to verse 33, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time on this first part here in these first couple verses in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, uh, particularly verse 25, 26, and 27, because these verses, as you're going to see, deal with a lot. They are very, very dense. And so let's read them, and then I'll do my best, by God's grace, to explain them. Paul says this, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now let's stop and, and chat here for a little bit because there's all kinds of kind of different viewpoints that come into these verses. And depending upon different theological traditions, depending upon different church traditions, people have kind of different interpretations of these verses. And I'm gonna do my best as always to explain to you where I think it means and, and, and as a lot of times as what happens, I don't, it's not necessarily falling into one camp uh, specifically because honestly, I think that multiple parts of this, there's, there's multiple depths to this. And Paul starts it off by saying, kind of picking up where he left us off last week, he says, listen, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. And, and that's a phrase that Paul says often because we have to remember Paul at the end of the day is really a pastor and Paul is writing this letter to the Romans and primarily to the Romans because about the Jewish people, there wasn't a lot of Jewish people in Rome at that time because it was so far away from Jerusalem. And so he is now as a, an apostle to the Gentiles explaining to them, listen, yes, the gospel has come to you, but like we talked about last week, don't be arrogant towards the Jewish people. Don't be arrogant towards those whose God's grace initially came to, but now because of their disobedience, it's coming to you. And so he's saying, listen, I, I don't want you to be arrogant. I don't, think you, I don't want you to be wise in your own sight. And then he says, I'm going to explain to you this mystery. Now, this word here, mystery, is the Greek word mysterion. It's literally, I mean, we just kind of brought it over into English. And it's a mystery that, that is not... Uh, you know, the way you use words in different languages mean different things. And I'll point it out uh, later on in this sermon with the word all. It's not used in the way that we normally use the word. And this word mystery here is not a word that's like, it's a crime to be solved. I mean, we like a lot of mystery shows. We like a lot of crime shows today. So when we talk about the word mystery, we think it's, oh, this is something we got to figure out. And so then a lot of people start doing a lot of kind of mental or spiritual kind of theological gymnastics to try to figure this out. 
And, and people do this all the time. They look at numerology in the Bible. They look at all these meanings. They look at this text and that text and that text. And they, they try to put this timeline together. And then they're like, oh, the world's going to end in 2012. And then it's 2019 and we're still here, right? This isn't a mystery in that kind of way. This isn't a mystery where we need to now kind of go back and see all these little connections, not saying they're not there, but what I'm saying in how Paul is using this word is this word mystery means we wouldn't know it unless God showed it to us. This is the idea of revelation. Now, revelation is not just a book in the Bible because that is John's ultimate view of what was happening then, what was going on, and to the end of the world. But the idea of revelation here is saying God reveals something. God makes known something. So Paul is now making known something, a revelation that wasn't primarily or previously completely understood. Now, we can go back in the Old Testament and see, now that we know this, we can look at, oh, that's what that was about. Oh, that's what that was about. Oh, that's what he was talking about there. But the concept here is simply this. This isn't a mystery in the sense that we could have figured it out if we had just worked really hard. No, it's the idea of God kept it secret until it was time to reveal it. And now he has revealed it. Now he has made it known, and he has done that primarily through Jesus Christ. This is why the book of Hebrews says, in the old days, God spoke like this, but now in the last days, he has given us a revelation of his son. So he is the final revelation. He is the final revealing of who God is. And so Paul's saying, listen, this was a mystery. We can look back now and look at the Old Testament and see how this is what was going to happen. But the mystery or the revelation is this, that God always had a plan to save the Gentiles. The mystery or the revelation was what is now called, theologically speaking, Gentile inclusion. And this is what I was saying to you last week. There's one olive tree. There's not multiple ways of salvation. There's not the Jewish way of salvation, the Gentile way of salvation. We now as New Testament believers are being grafted into the Jewish olive tree because Jesus was Jewish, Abraham, Jewish. All those people from the Old Testament all receiving the grace and mercy of God. And the great mystery is, is now through Israel's disobedience, this grace has gone outside of the natural family tree to include all of us. That's the mystery. But we can't be arrogant towards those whom the grace first started with, i.e. Jewish people. This is why I told you last week that there is zero room for anti-Semitism because our Savior is Jewish. Our Savior is a Jewish Savior. He is from the Jews. He came for the Jews, and he came from the Jews for the Gentiles. That's the mystery. But then Paul uses some specific words here to help us understand what else is going on as regards to the Jewish people. Because just because salvation has come to the Gentiles doesn't mean that God is done with the Jews. 
And so he uses some words here that we've got to take a while really to kind of dig into that I want to point out. So first I pointed out mystery. Second one there I want to point out too is a partial hardening. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now we have to parse these words here to help us understand what they mean. First, partial. What does partial mean? Part, right? You can answer if you want. Sometimes I know sometimes you're like, does he want me to answer or does he not? Is that rhetorical? I don't know myself. Sometimes I just say it. I just see how it goes. It's like spaghetti on a wall, right? And so partial, yes, it doesn't mean whole. So a couple things that that word means. If a partial hardening has come upon Israel, then that doesn't mean that all Israel is hardened, correct? So if it is partial, then what that means is not all Jewish people have this hardening. It's partial. Some do, some don't. And the reason why we know it's partial because Paul himself is Jewish. All the early disciples were. And the whole reason why it was partial, what that means very simply is not all Jewish people trusted Christ, but some did. And the reason why it was partial is because if it hadn't been there, then it would have never gone outside of the Jewish people. And everyone would have thought, historically speaking, that Christianity, this new thing that was happening, was just a revival within Judaism, and it was only for the Jews. And so in God's great mystery, in God's great plan, he uses, and he's going to argue this way in just a second, the disobedience of the partial that was hardened to take the gospel outside of the Jewish people. But just because it went outside doesn't mean it's not for those inside. And so the partial part here means what it means. Part of Israel is hardened, but not all of Israel. Not all. So the gospel has come to some. And again, we see this throughout history. In the early church, primarily the initial believers were Jewish. Again, the disciples, almost, not without exception, but almost all of the New Testament in regards to the majority of the disciples were Jewish. Obviously, Paul was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, as he said before, and he's the one who pushed it outward beyond Jerusalem because he was just simply obeying the command of Jesus to do so. So it's partial. Here's the next word, hardening. We talked about this a few weeks ago. What is hardening? Hardening means, Paul said this last week, that Jewish people would be saved if they didn't continue in their unbelief. So this word here, hardening, is the idea of a heart that is hard. And that's just a, a euphemism, if you will, to describe it's not soft, which means they don't believe. And so Jewish people will not be hardened anymore if they believe. And so this reference here is an idea of they don't believe. They don't believe. And this hardening, this unbelief, we've got to understand God didn't create within them. See, another objection people have a lot of times to the sovereignty of God or God choosing is like, well, if God chooses them and doesn't choose them, then that's not fair, which we said a few weeks ago. God has every right to have mercy on some, judgment on others, and his judgment is just. Why? Because they don't believe. You need to understand this. God doesn't create unbelief in people. God didn't create unbelief in 
Israel. They created that all their own. And so that's what this hardening is a reference to. They just don't believe. But here is the mystery. It's all part of God's plan. Here's what's crazy to me. God could even use our unbelief as a way to advance his plans. And he uses the unbelief of Israel, the hardening of Israel to advance his plans. And what is that plan for? Look at the next part of the phrase. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until, and that word there, until, is a time reference. Until means this was happening, then this thing happened, and this thing that happened as a result of this thing happening is going to continue to happen until this fullness has happened. Did I thoroughly confuse you? So this thing happened, and when this thing happened, it caused this thing to happen, and this thing is going to continue to happen until its purpose is fulfilled. And what is this thing right now? It would be called the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles. Now, biblically speaking, anytime you see Gentiles contrasted to something or someone, it's always contrasted with the Jews, the Jewish people, the Gentile people. And so very simply, the way that you can think about this is in the Old Testament, God chose by grace a people made them into a people, Israel, and through their disobedience, God took the gospel and he's now making another group of people, not separate from this group, he's grafting in another group, in with this group, who weren't that people, now they are, through grace. And when this fullness has occurred, this Gentile inclusion, if you will, when that time period has happened, then something else is gonna happen. So again, you understand how this is so dense? He's literally describing here Revelation. Again, not the book of Revelation, although it applies, but what he's talking about is, here's the history of what God's been doing. He worked through the nation of Israel, and then they disobeyed, and now he took that work outside the nation of Israel, but it still includes them. But now the primary purpose or the primary people of God during this time of what he's doing is happening through the missionary agency of the church, not of a nation. This is what we have to understand. God took a group of people, made them into a nation of families. Now, don't miss this, God, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, is taking a group of nations and making them into a family. So God took a family, made it into a nation. Now he's taking a group of nations and making it into a family. That is the historical redemptive purpose of God. And so the whole reason why you and I are included if we are Gentiles is because this redemptive plan that God is working out. So that happened because of their disobedience, because they didn't accept Christ. It came outside of the Jewish people to include way more nations. And the book of Revelation says every nation on earth. And that's going to continue happening until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And that word there, fullness, just means complete. So that means everybody that's going to choose God, the gospel is going to continue to go forward until they do so. 
But that's also a reference to the next part. Have I thoroughly confused you yet? I'm doing my best literally to condense down like an entire seminary degree in a sermon. All right, look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this is the phrase where there are so many hotly contested viewpoints. And, and me trying to be the peacemaker that I am, I see merits to just about all of them. And I think they, it applies in multiple ways. I don't think this phrase here, and in this way all Israel will be saved, is meant to have one kind of narrow meaning. Here's what I mean by that. Anytime Paul uses this phrase, and in this way, or so, it is a literary device that normally refers back to what he just said. And when you read this in English, that's the natural reading of it. So when he says, in this way, all Israel will be saved, what he's referring to is what he just said. And what he just said is Israel now, the great mystery, Israel is made up of Jews and Gentiles. That's the great mystery. Israel now has natural olive branches and wild olive branches, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and people from every other nation. So now Israel is bigger than what we thought. And so when he says, and in this way, all Israel, part of that reference, I think all Israel is a reference to the fact that Gentiles are included in them. Because it only makes sense when you read it this way. And in this way, it's referring back to what he just said. However, I shouldn't say however, I should say in addition to, when you use a literary device like so or in this way, not only can it refer backwards, but it can refer forward. And when you read what he says forward, let's read it again. It makes you think a little bit differently. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, capital D, that is obvious a reference to Jesus, will come from Zion. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, Jacob is another way of saying Israel. And in this, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when you read this phrase and you look forward, it makes it sound like Paul is saying, oh, God is going to continue to save the Jewish people, ethnically Jewish people, not just Gentile people. So this phrase, in this way, all Israel will be saved, is referring to how God is including Gentiles in, in the past and what he's been doing, or is it referring to how God is gonna save Jewish people in the future? Which one, church? Yes, yes. I've taught you well. <laughs> yes. And what most theological systems try to do is try to force you to choose between one of the two. I just don't think that that's what Paul's getting at here because it would negate everything else he said. Because in Romans chapter nine, verse six, if you remember that sermon, he said, listen, not all Israel is Israel. So he uses the term Israel to refer to an ethnic group and also a spiritual family. He says, listen, not everybody who's descendant of Abraham is a part of the true Israel. In chapter two, he says, here's a true Jew. So you can be a ethnic Jew and not a true Jew. So is Paul using this phrase here, Israel, to refer to ethnic Israel or spiritual Israel? I would say, yes. 
And here's very simply, if I could condense this down for you in a really concise thought, it is this. The mystery is Gentiles are included in, but that doesn't mean that Jews are excluded. God is not done with the Jewish people. Now, when it says all Israel, it does not mean no no real reputable theologian or scholar thinks that all Israel is a reference to each and every Jewish person who's ever lived throughout history. Because very clearly, Jesus himself calls the Pharisees the son of Satan. I don't think they're getting in. And Paul very clearly says, listen, all have sinned. All have fallen short. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're in. Just because you're ethnically Jewish doesn't mean that you're in. So no scholar or theologian believes that Paul's referring to every single Jew without exception. However, what most people do believe is that somewhere in the future, there will be a turning of Jewish people to their Messiah. That in the future, God will accomplish what he quoted here, that he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that he will take away their sins. Now, most people who believe that try to force the Bible into these periods where, and this is how a lot of us were taught when we were younger, especially if you came up in a certain tradition, that, and you watch the Left Behind movies, if you watched all of those, most people in those movies try to force a timeline coming out of verses like this. I just don't think that's true. Hate me if you want to. I don't believe in the Left Behind movies. I think that's great movies. I don't think it's great theology. Because I don't think we have to force it into these certain events that are happening. Again, a lot of that is not for us to know. And I can accept that. But here's what I can know. God has taken the gospel to the ages. He's taken the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that includes Gentiles. And it also includes Jewish people. So from here on out, he's going to save a lot of Gentiles. And he's going to save a lot of Jews. I can agree with that. Can you agree with that? All right, then let's not argue over the rest because that's how factions happen and people think they try to force it into these timelines. Listen, I'm not saying those timelines are gonna happen. I'm just saying if they don't happen, I don't wanna be wrong because I'm not trying to force the Bible into these specific periods of time because the Bible just simply doesn't operate like that. I don't know what those are. And so I'm going to be very, very cautious, just like Jesus was when he said, those times aren't for you to know. Don't worry about what that time is. What do you need to worry about? Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, here's where a lot of Christians and theologians get tripped up. We all want to sit around and talk about what the times are and let our neighbors go to hell. So that's why I don't get tripped up by the times. Now, if you want to have a conversation about theology or end times or eschatology, I'd be more than willing to have the conversation with you. However, I only want to have the conversation with you because you're concerned how much time you have to share Christ with your friends. Not so that you know how to say, oh, this is happening, then this is happening, then this is happening. Why? Because that's going to make you wise in your own sight, and Paul warns against that. Does that make sense, church? So there's one tree 
God is grafting Gentiles in, that's the mystery, but he's gonna continue to graft Jewish people in because he hasn't given up on them. How do we know that? Look at the next few verses. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling and the calling of God are irrevocable. Here's what Paul's saying. You wanna know why? God is gonna continue to save Jewish people. And you wanna know why most theologians believe in the future there will be a mass turning of faith from Jewish people to Christ is because God still loves them. God still has a plan for them. God's not done with them. He's saying, listen, right now, they're enemies for the sake of the gospel. What does that mean? It means they don't believe in the gospel. And so the gospel came to Gentiles because they disobeyed. But just because it came to, them, to us because they disobeyed doesn't mean God's done with them. God made a promise and he keeps those promises. That's what he says here. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, if you're more redneck like me, you would say irrevocable. Because the word revoke means to take back. But what's interesting here in the Greek, the word does mean to revoke, but it also can mean to regret. Here's what I love how Paul says. I think there's a double meaning here. Why is God's, why is God's grace going to come again to Jacob? Because God doesn't regret choosing them. Why can no one revoke it? Because God doesn't regret it. And you know why I take it to mean that? Because God doesn't regret anybody he chooses. I take great comfort in that. God doesn't regret making the choice. You want to know why? Because not only does people say, how does God know the future? Because he predetermined it. And so when God chose Abram, he knew that they would disobey. And he knew that through their disobedience, he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And he knew that as that faith went all the way around the world, it would make the Jews jealous. And he knew that in the end, the Jews would come back. And so God didn't regret choosing it. God's not up there going like, it, those dadgum Jews. And you know what? That's good news. Because he's not saying that about you either even in your disobedience. God doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't regret calling you and gifting you. This is the good news because God started it. He'll finish it. This is where people think, man, God could do so much more if the church would just get on their game. Now, is more gonna happen if we are Obeying God? Yeah. But are we stopping anything from happening? No. The only thing we're stopping from happening is our own blessing in being included in it. But we can't stop the calling of God. We can't stop the gifts of God. This is what I told you last week when it comes to election cycles and politicians. Christians, we don't need to freak out so much. Do you actually think a president of the United States can stop the plans and wills of God? No. So vote as best as you possibly can. Sometimes you have to go like this. Vote as best as you possibly can. Trust Jesus and take a nap. Why? Because God's in control. 
He's in control. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. There is nobody or no thing or no power or no principalities or no nation or no leader or no angel or no devil that can take something back from God. They're irrevocable. They're irrevocable. What that means is if God has said it, it will happen. And one of the things that he said is he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So it will happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. Is it happening now because the, the nation of, there is a nation of Israel now? Because that happened in the 40s and the 60s. And we just moved our embassy there on the 70th year of their now new, not new nation, but their reforming of a nation. Maybe, I don't know. Is all that part of God's plan? What I can tell you is yes. What does that mean? Oh no. Well, is this country and this, the Bible talks about the book of Revelation, right? And the great dragon coming down. Is that China? I don't know. Well, their flag is red. Really? Really? We're going to do that. And they like dragons. Really? We're going to do that. I don't know. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't even worry. Because you ain't nerding out on this stuff. All right? Here's all I know. God has got a plan. And that plan involves saving Gentiles and Jews. I'm just going to stick there. The rest of it, I'll trust to him. Look at verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, now listen to this, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. I referenced this earlier in the sermon with how we use words. Here's the word all. Now, when you read this, just in a straight, plain reading in English, you would think, oh, have mercy on all. That means God's going to save all people. He is going to save each and every person. No well-meaning believer or orthodox Christian thinks that. God, this is not universalism. God is not going to save each and every person. So what does the word all mean? In Greek, it is not used to describe each and every. It is used most often to describe all in the sense of saying all kinds of people. Because remember context, who he's been talking about. He's been talking about Jews. He's been talking about Gentiles and the contrasting nature between the two. One were natural, one were unnatural, but God's saving them both. So when he says he's going to have mercy on all, what he means is it's not constricted to one group. This is why Paul says in Galatians and elsewhere, there is now no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. There's now no distinction between male and female. It doesn't mean there's not Jews and Greeks. It doesn't mean there's not males and females, even though we've lost that sense in our culture today. There is. What it means is there is no leg up between either one of them. God is going to save all. Each and every? No, all types. So here's the plan of God. The plan of God, as I can boil it down, like I said, is it started with the Jews, 
through Father Abraham. And God gave Abram a vision. He says, look up at the stars. You're going to have as many kids as that. It was never constricted to literally just his physical descendants. Primarily, the deliverer, Jesus, was Jewish, but it was going to all people, all groups of people, all types of people. And so there's this redemptive plan that has been playing out for thousands and thousands of years, and we are in one small part of it. We're in one small part of it. And we can do our best to try to understand all that God is doing. But here's the thing. We will never fully understand it all. Ever. Paul has just let us in on one small mystery of what God is doing so that we can understand how to think rightly towards Jewish people. That was his whole point. Don't be arrogant towards them. Don't be wise in your own mind. God's not done with them. Just like he wasn't done with you, he's not done with them. And he's going to have mercy on all groups of people. He's going to have mercy on every type of people. This gospel is for all. Which naturally leads Paul into this point. And this is how I wanted to end the sermon today. Look at verse 33. When Paul thinks about this mystery of what God is doing, look at verse 33. He starts with the word, oh. 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 The depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. One of my heroes in the ministry, John Piper, said the problem with most commentaries today is they don't start with the word, oh. And so what happens so often, especially in the Western individualistic, humanistic mind, is we want to figure out every detail. And we want to figure out every detail about who God is and what God's doing. And then we'll decide whether or not it was a wise choice to trust Jesus. And here's what Paul's saying. You can't figure him out. You will never ever be able to figure him out. Even us now in the last 30 minutes have been talking about this mystery of what God is doing. And if it hasn't happened already, our brains just like fry. We're, we're, we're thinking about the things of God. And Paul, as he's talking about these things, breaks out into, depending upon which translation you have, it'll probably say doxology over this part of this section of scripture, which doxology is simply two words put together. Doxa is the Greek word for glory. Ology means the study of. And so doxology is simply the glory of God. And when you study the glory of God, what we call that today is worship, which is why in chapter 12, verse one through three, he says, this is how you worship. Why does he say this is how you worship? It's because after he thought about the mystery of God, it led him to worship. So all great theology begins and ends with doxology. And what that means is we come to a place where we understand I'm finite, but he's infinite. And John Calvin, the great theologian, said it like this. The finite can never contain the infinite. So my friends, if you're that type of person that's like, I won't believe it until I'll understand it, you'll never believe it because you can never understand it. Why? Because you're a human who has a beginning and has an end, but God is God who has no beginning and he has no end. And so if you want to talk against God and his plans and his ways, just wait until you meet him. Then you'll silence your mouth. 
Because when you see him as the uncreated one for all eternity, we will never, ever be able to contain him. So even when you meet him one day, you will have the mirror, the, the dimly mirror removed and you'll be able to see him, but you will never, ever, 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 ever be able to contain him. This isn't a Mormon theology where we become like him. We become our own God of our own little planets and have our own little babies and this all starts over. And you're like, that's what Mormons believe? Yeah, it's whacked out. Go read it. But this is not what we believe. We will never, ever, ever, ever be able to contain the uncontainable God. He's inscrutable. His, his, the riches and the depths of his knowledge are unknowable. And so if you're the type of person that's like, I could never worship something I, could, I can't understand, then you don't understand worship. Which is why every Sunday when we come in here, we begin and end our services with worship. Because worship is not just Singing, yes, it is singing, but that's not all it is. It's also response to the word. And so all I'm trying to say is simply this. I have done my best to try to explain to you what these verses mean. But even myself, who's gone to seminary and who studies the Bible for a living, I come to an end where I just don't understand. But you know what happens? That doesn't lead me to step back in fear that leads me to step forward in praise because I don't have to know if my God knows and if my God knows I can take a nap I can rest you got 70 years maybe 80 we say if you're lucky I don't know if 80 is lucky or not you have a the Bible says you're a whisper. Here today, gone tomorrow. But God is the Alpha and the Omega. Here today and here tomorrow. And that's our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for, thank, thank you for you, that you are God and that you are good. God, you have given us insight into this mystery. And it's called a revelation. And you revealed it to Paul so that he could reveal it to us. And God, we, uh, we can look at it and see that you're working to save Gentiles and you're working to save Jewish people. And we get to look at it and see that we get to humbly be a part of that. But God, may we never think that we have you all figured out. May we never say, I don't want to limit God, because we can't. Even the Jewish people's disobedience didn't limit you. It was all part of your plan. 
Your ways are higher. Your thoughts are higher. And God, we should want a God whose ways are higher. Because if this world is dependent upon the wisdom of man, we have thousands of years to show how that doesn't work. And God, if we think that some man or some woman is gonna rise up in a political scheme and save us all, then we believe in the Antichrist. Because that is what is what people will believe. That government is the savior. From government, one will come to save. No, from God, one will come. And he has come and he is saving. And so God, I pray right now, if there is anybody here that doesn't know you, that you would overcome their resistance to you and open their eyes and save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, but if you've never responded in faith and trusted Christ, I'm gonna simply give you an opportunity to confess and believe. And that belief is that Jesus is God and he was raised from the dead. And that if you have faith in him, that you will be saved. So if that's you, if you wanna trust Christ right there where you are, you can pray with me. And it goes like this, say, Father, thank you for loving me that you sent your son to die in my place for my sin. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I give you my life. I believe that Jesus is God and he rose from the dead. Thank you for loving me. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you just prayed and trust Christ, would you just very simply lift your hand up so we can see that? We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand. And when they do, you can put your hand down. But then as always, the rest of us, for those of you who just trusted Christ now, you're a part of us. Let's read the word and let it lead us to respond in worship. Nothing that is happening today, as scary as it may be, is outside of the gracious hands of God. He can use people's disobedience as a way to extend his mercy. And the good news is we're included in by his grace. And since we are included in by his grace, we have an opportunity to be gracious to others so that they can be included in by his grace as well. Father, we pray that our church would be built upon the rock of who Jesus is and we would have it as an anchor for our souls so that as we face trials and tribulations in this world that we can know you are God and you are good and you got it so we can trust you and take a nap. In Jesus' name, amen.